Hi, and welcome to the Thea Institute's Monthly Roundtable. This is where we provide color commentary around our published strategic action plans. Today's topic, integrating AI with secure software development lifecycle. So very quickly, let's introduce today's panelists, Dr. Todd Jacobs, Jim Desmond, Barack Engel, Wade Billings, Dr. Lisa Palmer, Dan Kinnan, and Doug Shannon. Thank you for joining us today. Let's get started. Everyone, thank you for joining us. This is our, our second Thea Institute Cybersecurity Forum, where we tackle the hard-hitting questions of today in cybersecurity and technology. As usual, we've got our, our august panel of esteemed colleagues all ready to and never shy to offer an opinion and maybe even an insightful trick or two. Today, we're going to focus on how organizations can safely integrate AI into our software development process without introducing quality issues or even unauthorized or, mal or even malicious code. I think this is a very germane topic and something that we need to focus on as organizations, as, as businesses in particular, are looking for that competitive edge. And I think everybody here would agree that generative AI has, has certainly um, sparked a lot of thought around competitive edge. If I don't do this, I'm going to fall behind. I got to do this. It'll get me ahead. But I don't know for how long, but I got to do it. So there seems to be a headlong rush towards it. And we as good cybersecurity practitioners are looking to see where are the potholes, the, the cliffs and the other things that might affect us. So we'll jump right into it. I, I don't think there's a need to do introduction. We'll have those at another point. Let's get started. So who on our panel wants to, to throw their opinion out? I, I'm, I'm bursting at the seams here because this is a very uh, <laughs> topical and timely uh, discussion. I was recently speaking with a founder and CEO of a very early stage startup uh, who was very happy and excited to pronounce that his entire code base was being written by ChatGPT. And that scared the shit out of me. <laughs> Um, and so I think that's an extreme case, but I don't think it's going to be uncommon, especially, you know, if, if you are paying attention to how generative AI is being received by the, by software engineers, uh, some are seeing it as a tool, right. In, in the co-pilot co-whisperer, uh, sort of way others are seeing it as, you know, uh, a co-author uh, or in some cases an author. And because I, I want to be able to give good advice, I went down that rabbit hole myself and had it, had ChatGPT write some code for me. And uh, what I found was code that worked, but it was, it was full of hallucinations, as they like to say. And when I ran it through a couple of other tools, static code analysis, analyzers and, and, and the ilk, um, it came up with a, quite a number of concerning findings. Uh, and so for me, I think it is a, it is a tool that's in its infancy uh, and it has a lot of potential, a lot of promise. But my counsel to this CEO and founder was, please don't do that, mm -hmm. right? That is... That is a uh, that is a road to ruin in my estimation. But I would love to hear what others have to say about well, that. Wait, was that please don't do that or please don't do that yet? That's a great point, uh, Jim. Yep. I think it's it is a it is truly a please don't do that yet, or please don't do that without doing some other things like what we're about to talk about, right? I mean, if it's just an isolation where I'm going to take code directly from chat GPT, I'm going to put it into a repo and then place that into production. That is not a happy path. Now, if I take code and then I put it through a normal software development life cycle where it is tested, it is scanned, it is reviewed, uh, it is placed upon a staging environment and exercised and then out to production, you know, I, I think the risk level goes down. But again, great point. And, and if I was able to go back in time, I probably would use, oh. don't do hey, that quite yet. I think, yeah. I think Barack 
Barack wanted to jump in on this. I, I did, and and perhaps I uh, I just want to say so that's um, that's a good intro, I think, to the to the general problem of development with uh, with um, ChatGPT or whatever any other uh, tool. But I, I think it is fair to say that the constraining the problem to the narrower subset of testing with ChatGPT changes the equation somewhat. And you know, I would love to hear your opinion quite about this. But at the end of the day, when we're testing, we're not writing code. We're just exercising code, which is sort of um, it's a more uh, it's a it's a task that to me appears to be much more well suited to what AI brings to the table because the but. You know, we also have good automated engines for testing various, um, um, you know, use cases in code and unit tests. And the question becomes, does AI really provide any any particular benefit here uh, in terms of being able to expand on existing unit tests, for example, I, right? I think but it I, does. I, 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 think it I think that's a, that's an interesting topic here, yeah. right? Is the, is the, does it provide us some added benefit here? Uh, as far as the risk, I just want to finish that thought. As far as the risks involved, there are lower risks involved here. Although, again, it's it's one of those things you you called it. Uh, you had a nice euphemism for it, which is the what was it? The mirage or or, or um, hallucination hallucinations. Uh, it you know testing it can also be subject to amusing hallucinations uh, sometimes, <laughs> and so uh, I just think that the uh, the 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 risks associated with it are a little lower. But but who knows? We might find some very interesting. This is the last thing I want to say, and then I, I promise, Todd, I'll give you the mic, is that whatever we do for good can always be done for bad. And I cannot wait for the hackers that use automated AI testing to develop um, methods uh. to, right, to properly break code that perhaps are novel and none of us have thought about yet. Right. So that's the that's the bad side or the other side of the coin. And Todd, over to you. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I guess the first thing I, I would say is one of the risks no one's really articulated yet, besides the fact that it can write bad code or, or incorrect code, is, is some of the legal ramifications. And, and I think as security people, we, you know, we work in regulatory frameworks. And, and before I jump into why I think testing is a great domain for this, I just want to call that out and say that you know, there's a lot of legal questions that none of us here are, are, are copyright or, or IP legal experts. We just played one on TV. And so, but I, I think that those are legitimate questions, but they're not going to get fixed anytime soon. This is something that it's going to take the legal system years to catch up with. So the question in my mind is, how do you use these tools while reducing the exposure from a regulatory standpoint, from a legal standpoint. And, and I think that when you talk about testing, you're not talking generally, unless it's you know open source and, 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 and so forth, um, you're not talking about tests where you're giving them to customers. They're in-house. They're nobody, you know, no, nobody's asking if you used a calculator to double check your answer when you built an application. And I don't think that they really care all that much how you write your unit tests. So I think that while this is not necessarily legal advice, I think the target on your back is a lot smaller when, when you're talking about testing. As far as why I think it's a good approach to testing, test-driven development is has been around for a long time. And not everybody is on board with it. It's, it's a, it comes from the agile side of things and not everybody's an agilist. But one of the really nice features about using AI to generate tests like this and where it adds some value, I think, is that by definition, for those of you who don't do unit testing, you're not in a technical role, the idea is you do this red-green refactor, right? Write a test that fails. Then you write the code, before you've written a line of code, then you write the code that makes the test pass, and then you refactor both until you have the feature the way you want it. And so I think what that does is when you apply it that way, it lets the AI come up with code that you'll know right off the bat. I mean, if you have what's supposed to be a failing test that's passing, you know it's wrong. If you come up with a test that's, you know, 
it, it's red, you write the green and it's still not passing. You know, at, at some point you, you look at the tests and you say, is the test doing the right thing? Does it have the right data? Is it, so it's, it breaks things up into much smaller, I think human analyzable chunks. And we've talked about explainable AI before. This is not explainable AI, but at least the output is something that a human being can look at fairly easily, a technical person at least, and say, this test makes sense or this test makes no sense whatsoever. And it's a little less problematic than, than trusting your actual application to the AI. Say something, you know, you're just hinting at one of the obvious human problems with AI, which is shared hallucinations, right? Because what you just said is the, the, the classic description that, you know, a human is going to step in and say, oh, wait a second, I have a, you know, automated AI-driven unit tester, right, that can modify my test, you know, and I have a, a code writer that is AI-driven that can take feedback from that one and improve the code and let them just run at each other until we create perfect code. Um, and it can, uh, can create even bigger problems. So it just... Handle with care, I think, is the, the the large label that needs to be applied to every AI usage right now, because the problem is never necessarily the technology. The problem is always the humans interacting with yeah. technology in novel ways. Yeah. Uh, right. Anyway, Doug, sorry. I, yeah, I mean, exactly. Right. I was going to say, like, you know, a lot of people are looking at AI doing code development and, and checking each other's code, kind of like we used, to, we used to do back in the day with developers. It's like, hey, this code checks by this other developer. But at the end of the day, really, to what we're kind of discussing here is like governance is key. And, and overall, new governance is going to be have to be written every day as these things change. Um, kind of to Wade's point is that there are these new code checkers. Apple just released theirs. Um, you know, Google's talking about theirs right now. And then you have GPT-4 just put out their new widget that says, hey, we can check code. We can do this stuff. Are there still hallucinations? Yeah. But how, how do we support that? And really, on the automation side of that, like being an intelligent automation, you know, I would be doing kind of what Todd was saying, it was like building automations to, to then check that code and actually test this in development and in ACC or QA so that we can ensure that there's nothing bad going to run against the production before we even think to, to move that. So definitely involving that human aspect, building that governance is really going to be the goal there. The more I dig in to, to AI and how it's being applied today, um, using chat GPT as a, as an example, I actually have just, you know, every time I go through this, I get like flashbacks to Tesla's autopilot, right? I use this as an example all the time, which is it starts off with everyone falling asleep in their front seat, <laughs> yeah. which is where we're at now. You know, the equivalent is people throwing stuff just into chat GPT and not caring what it is, right? Uh, and leaking source code and leaking PII and all other kinds of things, not looking at at, at uh, licenses and, and and who gets to keep the data. Right. But the reality is, is that the as as you guys have said, these are tools. Right. So eventually they're going to make us better. But all of those tools today, not one tool we have, allows a human being to take their hands off completely. Right. So I think that the first thing is all is is a human being always has to be there to check things. The other analogy I use is in running a development team. If you've ever had a junior developer on your team, you've had hallucinations that we're human. So there's always a, there's already a process to deal with this. And as, uh, as uh, Wade said, um, it's all about, uh, you know, digging into that SDLC process and making sure you're covering it with all of those steps, right? At that point, these things can become great, uh, uh, great accelerators, right? Because what senior developer wants to write simple code, right? What, what what middle developer wants to write simple code? Most of the code we write on a regular basis is actually simple code. Then, cool. then we specialize it, right? And we and we make it do exactly what we want. And that's when we put our special sauce into it. So I, I see an opportunity for AI to help with basically generating boilerplate, boilerplate um, and things absolutely. like that. Right. Yeah. But we're, we're, we're always going to have to feed into that process. Now, one day, maybe 10, 15, 20 years from now, maybe one day we'll be able to you know, press a button and the thing generates. Right. But it's like that's that's a, that's an end state. Right. That we may that that, that may be 99th percentile. Right. That last that last one percent might be so expensive and impossible to get that we just will always have to involve a human at some point to be able to solve this. I, I want to um, put it in the place of a of a, you know, a, a CTO or, or, 
you know, CEO of a company that's looking for that competitive advantage, right? Mm-hmm. That based on the cover of Wired or whatever he was reading that day, he thinks he or she thinks they're going to get a whole bunch of savings by introducing Jet GPT, whether it's test-driven development or development, you know, in a scrum or fall method. Do you see, do any of you see that they're going to get that competitive advantage they're looking for in that space, right? We joke about CIOs in my past, you know, we used to call one of them a condor because he'd swoop in going, compress, compress, you must compress the timeline. And Chad GPT is just sort of that promise to get me a little bit more time so I can make my stuff. What do you all think of that? So I think this is a really good topic. uh, And I'm dying to hear from Lisa about this because what you just said and the question that uh, Doug and and, and Dan were just touching on also seemed to to me to suggest a career path that is new in the world of AI. And it's not an expert AI user. It's an expert AI supervisor, right? Mm-hmm. That's something that has not existed before. And I think certain some developers might end up interested in this as a career path. And I think smart CTOs should absolutely consider that as part of their strategy to tackle AI. And, and Lisa, you you really are the, you know, probably the, the biggest expert out of this entire panel on this. I can't wait to hear from you. So I want to echo something that Todd said about the fact that copyright is a significant issue. Yeah. And it's not just the fact that there are already, there were two big lawsuits just filed this week from uh, from the original scraping of the data that was used to train ChatGPT. So the, the legal cases are just beginning to work out what is going to have to happen to deal with the way that these large language models were trained. So that's one element of the copyright. But on the on the example, um, on the example that was given earlier where we were talking about, a, a, a software company is some wanting to develop their core code this way. This horrifies me because cop, you will not own, you will not be able to copyright your code if you use large language models entirely to write your code. Um, that has already been determined from a legal perspective. You will not be able to. Now there's nuance in there and I'm not an attorney, but there are there's nuance in there about the changes that you would have to make to make your code actually able to be legally copyrighted. So there's two sides of that copyright issue right now that really elevate risk. So just oh. keep that in mind from an executive lens perspective when you're thinking about this. I just recently wrote a blog post about focusing on three different factors with regard to what are the impacts, Brock, to your point about what are the impacts from a role perspective and what should we be looking at? I am encouraging people to think about roles. If you're a leader, if you're an executive, you need to be thinking about the roles in your organization through this framework where you're asking yourself, is it a routine or non-routine task? Is it mental or manual labor? And how much human interaction is needed? So those three factors, if you take those into consideration, are going to indicate how much disruption is likely for that job. I like to point out to people that just because a job is going to be disrupted, that just means it's going to be changed. It doesn't mean it's going to be eliminated. So everybody that thinks that coders are about to be eliminated, I just want to go on record that that's not going to happen. I think coders are going to see some uh, much more interesting work that they get to do and not spend so much time on those routine, repeatable pieces of code that everybody's bored doing anyway. So um, with that, I encourage people to think about productivity through the lens of where can you gain productivity where you're not going to be stepping into the copyright risk arena. And that's why I, I believe that supporting this approach to using, um, to focusing on test, at least for now, and that was a great call out earlier, at least for now, Focusing on tests for productivity, I think, has some real 
opportunity to drive productivity and reduce the risk that you have in your overall organization. So you're getting the benefits and, and avoiding most of the risk. Do you think we could find ourselves in an era of, I hate to say this, so a gender AI troll patent lawyers, right? That are just- Oh, absolutely. We're not already there. Yeah. 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 We're there. <laughs> But, but I mean, it's, I really think that, and, and again, this is a little outside our, our general mandate, but I, I think the whole notion of copyright law as it's implemented today is going to have to be revisited oh, yes. as a society yes. because, yes. Um, you know, one of the, one of the challenges, and I'm going to, again, I'm going to publicly call out GitHub's co-pilot uh, because they, they continue to do the same thing. Um, you know, they, uh, they basically train their stuff on um, uh, open source uh, uh, stuff. So even if you have private repositories, your stuff is being used uh, by GitHub to train their model. Now, again, what comes out of the model with generative AI theoretically is the same put it in a big bowl and stir it around that happens in the human brain, right? I mean, what you can copyright is an expression. You can't copyright ideas, uh, math, facts of nature, right? I mean, so at the end of the day, I, I don't know that it's, it's stealing in the sense that we were, you know, and everybody who remembers Napster was taught to think of stealing. I think the problem is that all of our societal rules around copyright and especially around licensing, right? But raise your hand if you think you own any of the software that you've got on your computer, uh. right? Like, <laughs> like it's all licensed to yeah. you. And so um, by the same token, everything on GitHub has a license uh, if it's not all rights reserved, right? It's a G GPL license or a BSD license or an Apache license or something. But but what you get out of the system uh, with Copilot, with other things, um, doesn't say, you know, this is a derivative work that I got from something else. Now, um, is that good? Is that bad? I mean, that's, that's arguable, right? I, I would say that in a lot of cases, if it's coming up with something that doesn't look like something else that you can search for, and it's not trivial, I mean, if you're trying to say two equals two, there are only so many ways to express that in any language, right? Um, so should that be copyrightable? Probably not. But um, I think that when we start thinking about the fact that these open source licenses and other license terms aren't acknowledging uh, their sources, that there's no way to tell. Um, I'm not saying that's good or bad. I think that that just makes us have to rethink the, the, the whole idea of the Creative Commons. And I don't just mean the Creative Commons license, but the idea that pa uh, patents and copyright were originally designed to encourage people to put things out there that would eventually become part of the public domain that other people could then build upon. Um, but we've drifted from that. And so now companies like, like all of us work at have to think about questions like who owns the copyright, who's got mm -hmm. the licenses, are the licenses paid for, are we following the terms of the license agreement, uh, the data processing agreements and all of that. Um, so I think that by focusing on the testing side, it, what we're doing is we're kind of neatly sidestepping the issue of is the product that you're selling um, uh, full of uh, machine generated code that may have been taken from somebody else. Now, but do you wait? Hang on, Todd. Do you well, think the C-suite is going to allow you to sidestep? The, the productivity, competitive advantage, whatever you want to call it, of generating code. Because what we're talking about here, you know, we're talking about roles and things like that, but we want to, you know, CEO wants to reduce his spend to create his product, right? And ChatGPT sure. or generative AI promises to do that. And you look at him and you go, 
no, I want to do testing because this scares me. And he goes, but I'm only getting a 10th of the reduction in cost I'm looking to get. Do you think that will really fly? Well, that's largely risk appetite. This is this is this is exactly where where I think yeah. we, right, as leaders in theory, right, as experts in theory. I don't, you know, I'm neither one of those, but you all are. Um, I, you know, this is where we have to step in with simple messages that can come across. So, for example, one of the questions that I recently find myself asking in these specific contexts, right, is. Are you willing to, for the productivity gain, are you willing to take the risk that the great benevolent tech company, Microsoft, ends up owning all of your products? Yep. That tends to get people to thinking a little bit more. And I will say this, we understand this as consumers, right? I mean, we all heard this before. If you're not paying for the product, then you are the product, right? If we're not paying for chat GPT and through Copilot on GitHub to write your code, you are the product. Yeah, it's the Facebook model, right? Your data is I'm getting. And so people understand that. We just have to be very clear with these very simple messages rather than have these high, I mean, isn't this the purpose of our institute to kind of take it from the realm of the the gods and the vendors and take it to the people? These are the questions I think we need to ask. Are you comfortable with Microsoft potentially potentially owning your product? Are you the product? These are very simple questions to ask. Well, uncovering, you know, what Lisa was saying um, about focusing on productivity, I think not only is there an opportunity for this in test-driven development, but I actually think there's a greater opportunity for this in non-test-driven development. And the reason why I say that is because both in test-driven development and in and in non-test-driven development, you get complaints all the time. It's, it's, it's almost like tech debt, right, around uh, code coverage, right? What's our code coverage? For test-driven development, it tends to be a higher. It's not perfect, but it tends to be higher. But then you have all these non-test-driven development folks who are way behind in code coverage and, and, and are may never catch up because they're that far behind. This is a perfect area for generative AI to come in and generate the test beds to increase your code coverage. And to your point, Barack, you know, this is to your test code that's testing your code. You, It's in a box. It doesn't go out to clients. It's not public. You're not selling it. You're not making money off of it, right? And so I think there's and a Microsoft huge... Microsoft is welcome to own it, right? I mean, you know, it's, yeah. it's just test code. Yeah. So. I, just, I just think there's a, this, this, this massive, massive opportunity for non-test-driven uh, uh, development shops to really get a huge boost in their test coverage. And you know, you would hope that that would also result in in better outcomes for the code. But I think that that's something that you can sell to, you know, 95% of the tech world and they'd buy it up in a second. Yeah, it, Wade, you had something that you wanted to chime in yeah, on? Yeah, I, I do. And I don't know how germane it is or not, but, and I will again, invoke the, I am not a lawyer coverage here, <laughs> but this Reminds me of, I don't know how many people on this call remember back in the early 2000s when a little company called Caldera or SEO. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh, uh, sued, claiming right. that Linux was, you know, borrowing or lifting wholesale, uh, you know, aspects of the Unix source code into, Lin- you know, into their source code. Um, and they sued everybody. They sued IBM. <laughs> uh, they sued Dahmer, you know, Dahmer Chrysler, Novell. Yep. Um, so I think there's precedent here, right? I think that there is precedent to say that, hey, somewhere is going to assert that because a large language model was potentially trained on their GitHub repo, that you know, that is my code, that is my intellectual property. And, you know, I agree that copyright law is going to have to, it's going to have to catch up. Um, But again, I I don't think we're in that new of water here. I think that again, there are not too long ago precedents that we can look to, to see how this might go. Well, I I mean, that's, that's a good example because, you know, the SCO case was all over a header file. And for those of you who aren't programmers, a header file basically declares some variable names. I mean, that's, you know, basic. so, so, uh, you know, that was a pretty thin uh, 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 basis on which to hang the lawsuits, but that, that still took what, almost a decade to unwind, right? Yeah. So, I think it is a legitimate concern, and and to to 
I think it was Barack who raised the question, or maybe it was Jim, uh, the question of, well, you know, how do you how do you sell this uh, to the to the CIO or the CTO or somebody who wants to press the go faster button? I, I don't know that it's the CISOs or CSOs job to say yes or no. I think it's our jobs collectively as uh, essentially the people who think about how systems fail and about risk management to put these in front of the people that make those decisions. And you put it in front of the general counsel, you put it in front of the board of directors and you say, what's your risk appetite? I mean, if yeah. somebody wants to sue you, are you prepared to defend against it? And if not, what would you rather do? And you may let them make the decision. Um, but I think it's also worth pointing out that uh, just like many of the other folks on this call, I've tried using uh, uh, AI to, to actually write more complex bits of code. And what I'm finding, and again, 10 years from now, it may be a different story. But right now, uh, what I find is what the systems are really good at is giving you small chunks that you can glue together. But it takes an expert uh, uh, software developer to glue those pieces together, to change the things that need to change, to fix the call signatures, to, to figure out which module they end up in. I mean, you cannot just turn these things loose and say, go write me an application because whatever comes out the other end is useless. Yeah, so, well, so I'm I think, I think for... you're, making, you're making the case for, for testing even stronger. So to touch on something Lisa said, something Dan said, at the very least the two of you said this, is the data governance bit. So one of the things you can now use very easily to increase productivity with AI without all of these risks of letting it write code is to ask you questions. Maybe you don't want to spend a quarter million dollars a year on a data governance tool, but you do need to check whether there's sensitive data in your testing platform, right? You can ask, uh, you know, ChatGPT to check for that for you as part of your testing. That doesn't incur any any risk, and it might be a, a good way to reduce spend and increase productivity. So there's all these little things we can suggest that people yeah. do um, uh, that that can be useful and immediately provide that immediate benefit that Lisa uh, uh, mentioned earlier without incurring a lot of additional liability or, or potential risk. I'd like to take there's, that there's... even just one. Oh, go, go ahead, Dan. I was going to say that. Take that a step further, but. Go, go ahead, I gotta find my thought again. Oh, sorry about that. Uh, so yeah, no, listen, there are tools out there now. Um, I'm, you know, I'm more than anything else a Rubyist and uh, <laughs> sorry about that. I do video, not know video how to, editing, I, Video editing is a wonderful thing. <laughs> it is. Yeah, no, okay, I, just take a pause before you start again. I'm unplugging my smart devices because apparently uh, uh, they're not smart enough to know that I'm in a call. Um, what I was going to say was that, uh, you know, there are tools now uh, that will help you generate um, uh, testing data instead of um, using production data that you've hopefully scrubbed. And um, for the technical people watching this, you know, there, there's this distinction we, we have, we, we have fixtures and we have factories, right? Um, nobody in the C-suite is going to care, uh, but some of the people who watch this are technical people. And, and, and it's, it's important that they know that we understand their pain points too. And so uh, what a lot of companies do is they say, well, you know, our stuff is really complicated. So we're going to take a dump of the data that we've got in production and we're going to try and scrub it. And that's what we're going to go use in development and QA. Now, a more agile approach uh, is to generate uh, factory data, which is basically on-demand imaginary data, you know, fake names, fake social security numbers, fake phone numbers, I mean, you know, the laws of chance being what they are, uh, that doesn't mean that you might not come up with something that matches one of seven billion people in the world, but it's not real data. That's the, that's the bottom line. It's just 
randomized stuff. Um, and we have that now. We don't need AI for it, right? It's just it's just random numbers. But where AI, I think, can can really help is automating the process of saying, you know what? It's not enough to come up with a random name. Uh, you know, we want random names where sixty percent of them are uh, uh, because of our data sets. Sixty percent of them live in Wisconsin. Right. Uh, so great use of saying, um, you know, hey, can we use an AI tool in testing to build out some of this uh, on demand data for testing? Um, and again, if you're following red, green refactor, um, the minute you run that and it's supposed to fail and it's like, no, it's it's passing, you know, there's something wrong with your data and you can go in and you can you can fix that. Once it's in your code base, that's a lot harder to deal with. Yeah, I mean, take, take an AI to do like the shotgun approach, but still contextual information is, is key, right? It, it does really well with that. And as long as you're testing that data, you're going to be in a good spot. But again, like to all the other you know, conversations around like hallucinations and like looking into grounding all that information, you just have to make sure we, we, yeah. you know, we dial that in with the governance. Sure. Uh, sure. This whole yeah. this whole evolution has been action reaction, right? We were talking about it earlier, which is that you know we're going to have we've got generative AI, but at some point someone's going to use it for bad, right? We've got examples from previously. We've got we've got uh, uh, you know legal cases that are that that are, are are in play right now. That I guarantee you, a good number of the C suite are just sitting there watching. They maybe want to go after this stuff, but they're just sitting back and watching and waiting for the precedent to come out before they decide which which way to go. Um, and I think the reality is if you look at AI today with like things like deep fakes, right? You have deep fakes, then you have Intel coming out with, oh, we're going to create an AI that can identify a deep fake. And then after that, someone's going to look at what Intel did and go like, we're going to make a better deep fake. And so eventually I see us having, you know, the way we always deal with this complexity, because this complexity, right, that we're dealing with here and 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 the the exponential effect of that and so what i see happening is every time we hit complexity we add layers 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 to protect so i see in five years that we're going to have integration tests that pull in an ai product and that ai product is designed to look at our code and say what's the risk of copyright right what's the risk of ai generation in this right and so we're going to have basically competing ais right as we learn how to use ai and how to license ai and how to bring it in and we're going to overlap all of these layers to generate code have a human being modify it have it go through integration testing and then have it go through final copyright checking before it goes out the door and then skynet will decide you no longer need it and eliminate right. it yeah no, i mean yeah, it goes back to like when 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 AI becomes smarter than us, how do you how do you then govern AI? Well, you have to have a, an AI to govern the AI because we can't comprehend that anymore. And so that that's the potential future is is kind of like the generative AI was contextual AI now, and the future is going to be artificial general intelligence. And right. We have to deal with that. So, well, I, I'm, I'm less fearful. Well, we already well, have examples of AI writing code that is not human understandable, right? So are we putting controls in place that say every piece of code you write has to be human understandable? Uh, you know, humans don't behave that way. We're not very good at at, at these kinds of things because we always think about building the new bridge. We never think about maintaining <laughs> the old bridge. Right? When, when the problem gets bad enough, we will. <laughs> and that might be too late because the bridge it, is not catastrophically collapsed and killed 200 people, you know? Right? But but isn't that mostly the way it goes? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's how you get a stop sign, right? You get a stop sign because there's a wreck and then somebody goes, well, we should probably put a stop sign there. Well, but, so. you know, it's interesting. I I, I I think I agree with the concern that that it, it, it is going to be an arms race. It's going to require us to revisit a lot of the social and legal norms that, that we exist within. But if we look at it a little bit differently and say, let's shift the frame, right? And instead of saying, why, why are we all scared? Well, we, the collective we, right? Why are we all scared of AI? There are reasons. Mm -hmm. However, I think our job as thought leaders is to come up with reasons to say, but there's an upside and here's where it is. And I think, I think 
this is one of those cases where, despite some of the potential negatives, we can say, here's a, here's a strategic approach that reduces your risk, improves to, your, to, to the CIO or the CTO, it, it improves your efficiency uh, to uh, your general counsel and uh, hopefully reduces our risk and to everyone else and faster time to market and all of these other great things. Um, and, and I think that that really um, positions this as uh, not a question of if it's coming or how to put, how to tap the brakes, but more to say, where is the safest go yeah. faster button, right? Uh, yeah, I, I go back to what Jim said, you know, you go most, you know, many, not most, but many C-level executives and say, oh, well, you know, this is a safer way to do it. But the, their eyes are already rolling into the back of their head, right? I mean, they don't, they don't care. They're not going to care, right? So you need a, you need, I, I think you need hard hitting sort of like um, uh, sound bites that catch someone within, you know, off guard within the first two words. Because, you know, I, I don't know, my experience as a, you know, uh, over two decades of, of, you know, being a, a, a CISO for over 60 companies and all of that stuff, right? Um, uh, people generally don't take good advice. <laughs> well, Human behavior. Lisa called out the uh, the lawsuits earlier. I think is Sarah Silverman, the comedian, suing you know yep. OpenAI because they she was able to get a summary of her work, which is copyrightable, right? So it it'll be really interesting yep. to see how that evolves. Yeah, but you know, like historically, we've had cliff notes, right? And 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 there were lawsuits back in the day about you know, is Cliff Notes, uh, were they infringing people's copyright because they were summarizing, you know, books kids had to read in high school? And, and, and so, I, again, I'm, I'm not dismissing those concerns as irrelevant. I, I think I'm just saying that, that we're working with a system that, a legal system that hasn't really caught up. And, and to Barack's point, I, I agree. People, you're not going to get uh, a ton of people on that bandwagon of looking at what is safe uh, or or even wise. Um, but again, I don't know that that's really our our jobs. Our jobs are to say, um, I mean, really, that's that's the general counsel's job, right? Which is uh, to say, do not do that. Um, uh, right, you don't have to go toe to the toe with the, the the CIO or the CTO and have that argument. You can lay it out and say, "I think this is a good strategy because," and then you know you guys can go into the Thunderdome and sort it out. Um, well, also, in, a, in an effort to de-fear the the security space, which is something I try and do on a regular basis. Um, not a very successful place to come from when you're trying to scare people into security. Um, but the reality is, is we really aren't that close to the AI that we're afraid of. The reality is the AI that exists today. Well, let me start off by saying this. A lot of the people who say they are doing AI are really doing procedural because they're not training anything. So half the AI out there, maybe more, is actually not. The AI that is out there is incredibly narrow. Take ChatGPT, for example, Right. Uh, it's amazing. We've we've actually gone to a point where we've we've as a culture anthropomorphized Chat GPT into, frankly speaking, an almost human being. But the reality is, is those of us with with the the know how know how to trick it, know how to how to trip it up, know how to make it hallucinate, right? Because it's a machine like anything else. And the reality is, is you know, Chat GPT, OpenAI took you know, three or four narrow AIs, stuck them together, and got them to work together. And so now we have narrow AI with context. Right. But but even that is so far removed from anything that could take over a job, um, you know, or launch nukes that, you know, I think we have some time to figure this out. Um, and as human beings and as a representative of the human uh, uh, race, we will continue to screw things up uh, left and right going forward and then fix them. And that's how we've always done it. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd like to get everybody's take just because it's it's come up in a couple of different ways is maybe just um, uh, just get everybody's quick take on 
how what is the best way that you know of to pitch this as as the optimal route right we've talked about all the people who would say no or or have objections or want to do something more something less um but i i think you know if you got a sound bite that you know, you're you're presenting to the rest of the C-suite or to the board of directors or the VP of engineering and his team. Um, uh, what's what's the sound bite that you'd give them that says this is a great approach? When I go first, the stuff that I talk about, especially on the automation and AI side, is is essentially it's it's you know because a lot of people are worried about jobs. It's it's don't fire. It's just don't hire. But you're you're still hiring. You're hiring the technical people you need and the people with the resources. You're just not hiring bodies. You know the classic set of like, oh, I need bodies. I need people to do this. Yeah, you should never hire those. You should automate. You should use AI to supplement some of those to to enable your people to do more. Uh, Jim, since everybody's uh, like not necessarily on the same place on the screen, you want to just call on people yeah, in Brock, rotation. Yeah, Brock, why don't you take us? Well, I, I I think I gave a couple earlier, right? Uh, <laughs> they're more on the they're more on the 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 fear induced uh, aspect, right? You want Microsoft to own your code, and you are the product. Um, uh, so, uh, apologies for not coming with a positive soundbite. I, I might need to noodle around that. Uh, Lisa, what do you think? I'm probably gonna be on the opposite end of the spectrum from Brock here. I encourage executives to move forward. You cannot afford not to gain productivity benefits, which equates to profitability. You can't afford to be the last one to the party using this technology. So you need to get some smart advice to help you to decide where to engage and where not to, but you need to be doing it. So I definitely encourage people to lean in to taking advantage of automation to Doug's point first and to artificial intelligence. You don't wanna be the last ones to the party. And then once you have done that, you have to be very purposeful and reclaim the time so that your people are using that productivity gained back in the way that you want them to be using it to continue to drive profitability. So I, I believe that you have to lean in. I, yeah, I'm gonna call my own number. I 100% agree with Lisa. The only thing I'll add is that um, know how much you're willing to bet, right? And be able to walk back. So go so far, don't go so far that you tip over the edge, be able to go there, fail if you do, pull back and try again, or keep going forward. Daniel, what do you think? Um, I think a large part of this is going to, again, depend on the legal stuff that comes out. Um, in the meantime, I think, uh, you know, C-suite in general, I agree that they have to push the edge. They have to discover. They have to R&D, right? It's the only way... Ironically, some of the problems we've talked through, this is the only way we're going to get through those problems, right? And, and, and I think right now is that, you know, a lot of CEOs are standing back going like, you know, well, you go ahead, <laughs> right? Um, and some other CEOs are going, okay, and they jump right in, um, you know, but I think the reality is, is this is going to get messy before it gets better. And that's, that's, I think that's how this, this is supposed to work. Um you know, from a how you know from a from a situation of how do you make the best of this for a company, right? Or, or if you're trying to lead an effort in a, in a company, the reality is is we should always be trying to look for areas to to streamline, right? And I think this is perfect for that. Is is you 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 look for a few areas to streamline and you implement it small first, then you increment and you increment and you increment and you get a little bit bigger, and in that way you treat. You treat AI like a employee or like a vendor or like a contractor, which is you build trust over time. And I think that's the only thing we're going to be able to do there. Is it fair to say, to summarize what you just said with the words, it's not magic? It's it's not magic. <laughs> I mean, is that, is it that a like it. Putting it, right? You know, it can be useful. It's just not yeah. magic. Yeah. All right, Wade, you're on. Well, first off, I want to say uh, I've been enjoying cheating or not cheating, but uh, trying to trick chat GPT to give me a Windows key that actually works. That's been a lot of fun. Um, but 
the conversations I've been having lately have reaffirmed my belief that history is a flat circle or a flat loop in that I'm having the same conversations I did in 2010 when everything was about moving to the cloud, right? Uh, yes. Uh-huh. Remember that? <laughs> Right. And the, the, Remember the, the paperless office from the 80s uh -huh. and the <laughs> concern that the C-suite had about where's my data going to live. Right. Yes. I just built this data center, spent a whole bunch of money on a bunch of hardware and, and people to manage that. And now you're telling me I should move everything into the cloud. Yeah. And it, it is a very similar conversation. Right. And I think your early adopters and your early majority, they're going to do it. Uh, just because they want to be on that leading edge and our jobs are to keep them on the safe side of that leading edge. Yes. Um, but eventually uh, technology would get to the point where the pendulum will swing backward, you know, swing the other way. And, you know, we will have the, the right safeguards and legal protections in, in place. But until that time, do not fear AI, do, you know, uh, but also do not put all of your eggs in the AI basket. There you go. Todd, you got one? Nice middle. Yeah, I do. Uh, mine's pretty quick. I I think that um, I think people have to dip their toes into the into the AI water, and I think that the best place to do that is in the stuff that people find painful and boring to do. And ask anybody who programs. Programmers hate writing unit tests. QA people hate writing tests. They do it because it's their jobs. But nobody likes it. It's drudge work. And so if we can offload that to a system that makes it less drudgery, so much the better. And I think that's the go faster button that a lot of people are going to be looking for. And it, But it does not remove uh, the need for people from the equation. It just lets them move on to instead of kneading the dough and leaving it to rise for whatever before putting it in the oven, they can just move on to making a sandwich. And I think that that's, that's to everybody's benefit. Excellent. Well, we're just about out of time. Actually, I take that back. We are out of time. Thank you to everybody who participated in the panel. This was an outstanding discussion. We really, I think, as we normally do, we found the boundaries and then just jumped over them and, and kept exploring. So well done to every single one of you. And uh, I think we can safely call this one a wrap. And, and thanks, everyone, for participating. Great job. Sounds good to me. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, folks. Let's introduce today's panelists. Dr. Todd A. Jacobs is the Chief Information Technology Officer at Codenome Consulting. He's an industry leader in IT audit remediation and a strong proponent of applying agile principles to C-suite leadership. Jim Desmond is the Chief Security Officer at Assurian. He's an expert in successfully creating large security programs through team building and a unique people-first approach to both information and physical security. Barack Engel is the chief geek at Immune and the author of the book Why CISOs Fail. He frequently challenges industry assumptions about what security can be and how to deliver it effectively. Hugh Wade Billings is a cross-functional expert in technology, security, and work culture who routinely provides insight on the impact of a company's culture on its security posture. Dr. Lisa Palmer is the founder and chief strategist at AI Leaders. She's an in-demand speaker in the field of artificial intelligence, as well as AI's impact on IT and cybersecurity. Dan Kinnan is a respected expert on security program delivery and technology solutions. He brings a blend of strategic and tactical viewpoints to cybersecurity topics. Doug Shannon is an experienced clinical research executive with a strong focus on IT and robotic process automation. He's also a Gartner Peer Community Ambassador. Thank you for joining us today.